Mark Blaygrove is director of Swansea University's Sleep Laboratory and professor of psychology. And he's at the forefront of research into lucid dreams and the possible functions of sleep and dreaming. Professor Blaygrove's research is conducted in the lab, in dream salons, and through dream reports collected by participants at home. Blaygrove has a very interesting YouTube channel featuring dream salons held at the Freud Museum in London. And his book, The Science and Art of Dreaming, co-authored with artist Julia Lockhart, explores a link between recounting your dreams and empathy. I asked Professor Blagrove to tell me more about the dream salons. I've, for many years, investigated uh, sleep and memory and dreaming in the sleep lab and, and in experiments. And then on one occasion, a, a dreaming conference, I went along to a dream group in the morning and not many researchers went along to the dream groups where groups where dreams were discussed or at least one dream would be discussed in detail. And they actually chose mine because I was the only one who had one. And it was incredibly meaningful discussing the dream with people. And so I then started to run dream groups, partly for students. And there's there's methods, uh, questionnaires that can be used to find out how much insight and benefits people have got from a dream discussion. And so we published papers on that showing that people get considerable benefit for self-insight in discussing their own dreams. It's pretty weird, um, isn't it? I mean, as soon as somebody says, oh, I had this strange dream last night, yes. your eyes roll back and you discover that you've got an urgent meeting to go to. That can happen. There's a famous <laughs> phrase you're quite right about. There's nothing more boring than listening to other people's dreams. However, in response to that, and one of the things we point out in our book, we go through all of the details of the studies and surveys that have been done on on dream sharing, that dream sharing is really quite common. And a lot of people do share their dreams each each week. And on top of that, on top of dream sharing, people have investigated what the reasons are for dream sharing. And the main reasons are to, to provide entertainment to the other person, or because you want to find out about the dream, or because the, the other person was involved in the dream. And so there is a lot of reason for why people share dreams. It does seem to be common. But also what we found in our work of public dream sharings and dream salons, as we put it, is that if you approach it as a sort of a detective type work of what's the relationship of the person's dream to their waking life, when you hear about their waking life and their dream, the dream can often become incredibly poignant and incredibly meaningful. And can you not work them out for yourself? Do you need other people to join the discussion? That's a very interesting point about whether you can work it out for yourself. I can't do so a lot of the time. And, and what happens is I sometimes share my dreams with my wife and, and she will point something out about, well, look, this happened yesterday. Or I will do the same to her. Even the most experienced people with dreams need help from other people, and it's certainly true for just people in general. You're not worried that it's One, a bit horoscopy. I mean, it's easy to find significance in exactly. anything if you yes. think hard enough about it. That's very 
correct kim that that there and one of one of my concerns originally was isn't this just like a horoscope there's um there's a very famous effect called the barnum effect where if you give the same horoscope or the same description to lots of people they all can read into it yes. from uh, from their own lives the experience i mean uh, the experience though of discussing a dream with someone often the the contents of the dream are very specific to the person they don't copy what was in your waking life, but they have metaphorical relationships with it. And that's when it becomes more tailored to the person. I mean, for example, shortly after the, the pandemic, we discussed a dream that the poet and children's author Michael Rosen yes, had had. we're going wow. on a bear hunt. Yes, he wrote, we're going on a bear hunt. He's written all these absolutely wonderful books and he was he terribly almost, ill during he was in a coma yes, right and he, he had this dream yes, afterwards yes he was yes he almost died while he was recovering he had this dream of being on the cliffs at land's end in britain which is in england which is where the, the land ends literally and being the other side of the of a wall over the, and next to the cliffs and being pulled through a hole in the wall and pushed by his wife, who was who was behind him, but being pulled through a hole in the wall. Now, that was an incredible description of the fact that he'd almost died. And we held this event with him at the Freud Museum in London. And Julia, the artist who I work with, she pointed out the dream of being pulled through the hole in the wall away from the cliffs. It's being pulled through from illness. Ah. And it was a wonderful metaphor. Yes. Um, and this is another example of where it helps to have other people telling you something. When it comes to lucid dreaming, which is being in a dream and knowing it's a dream, is it necessary to practice remembering your dreams in order to approximate the lucid it's very difficult because lucid dreams are really quite rare. You know, so half the population in Western countries have have a lucid dream once in their lifetime. Really? And it's about in the, in the, yes. And it's in the sleep lab. We find out it's about two percent of rapid eye movement sleep dreams. So they really are quite rare. So people are quite lucky if it happens to them. But it does mean because of their rarity that you need to have lots of ordinary dreams, non lucid dreams in order to catch these occasional ones. And there's techniques for doing so, such as waking up early and then being awake for a while and then going back to sleep and having a, a sleep period. So your brain's really quite active or just questioning yourself in your dreams and in waking life. Am I awake or am I dreaming? Am I awake or am I dreaming? So there's techniques to do it, but they are indeed really quite rare. If you Google lucid dreams, you come out with all sorts mm. of woo woo stuff you know, yes. about astral travel. Is that where yes. you're going with this? Or is lucid dreaming a thing in itself? Lucid dreaming really is a thing in itself. And it's it's a very interesting thing. And lots of neuroscientists are now studying it because what you can work out is you, you have your ordinary dreams where you don't know it's a dream. And you have your lucid dreams where you're dreaming and you know it's a dream. And so it has this difference of being self-aware in it. And so one of the hopes is that in neuroscience, we can use that to see what happens in the brain when you're self-aware versus when you are experiencing things, but not self-aware. So it's got a real scientific validity. And lucid dreams are also used for 
alleviating nightmares because if you can teach people to have lucid dreams when they're having nightmares they can possibly in a nightmare realize that they can control the plot of right. the nightmare shout there at the monster to make it go methods. away right yes precisely or, or alternatively just deliberately waking oneself up or knowing that things in the nightmare aren't real there are unfortunately things called lucid nightmares in which you know that the nightmare isn't real but you're still terrified and you can't get out of ah. it so it's not it's that's how bad things can get and so a lot of this is very medical and a lot of scientific scientifically true and biologically relevant and so it's keeping away from the woo-woo stuff is very easy because there's so much to do with lucid dreaming you know the personality of lucid dreamers for example is something we've studied there's a lot of science and and medically relevant work that can be done on it so what's the personality of lucid dreamers well, we, we did this at Swansea University quite a few years ago. We got people who are very frequent lucid dreamers. So they, they have them at least once a month. And we then we got other people who'd had at least one in their lifetime. And then we got people who'd never had one. And we gave them a questionnaire called locus of control. And locus of control means do you feel in charge of your own life? Oh, yeah. Our verses. Do you think that things are just chance or you're at the whim of powerful other people? And if you score high on locus of control and if you're high on locus of control, you believe it's true for other people as well. You know, they ought to take responsibility and can take responsibility for their own lives. So it's a bit of a unforgiving personality trait in some respects. But we found that the lucid dreamers scored very high on lucid on locus of control. They are internal locus of control. They believe that things in their own life are under their own control and they are responsible for them. And that personality trait seems to carry over into their sleep and into their dreams. Wow, never losing control even when you're asleep. Yes, obviously for most dreams, as for most people, they won't. They will have the ordinary type of dream and the lucid ones are, are rarer, but they're more likely to have them. I would say, though, for where I, whereas I use the word ordinary dream, what I mean by that is just a dream where you don't know that you are dreaming. And although there is a lot of proselytizing in a way or, or recommendations in, in books to, to have lots of lucid dreams, we shouldn't forget that the more the dreams where you're not lucid may be more useful for us in a, in a sort of personal growth sense, that if you're having a lucid dream, you may think of obvious things to do like flying. Whereas in your actual ordinary dreams, you can come up with these amazing metaphors and thoughts about yourself. And when I say thoughts, I mean pictures. And uh, you're living in these metaphors that depict your own life and may even show a way of looking at your life that you hadn't actually thought of already because of having the metaphors. I'm talking to Mark Blaygrove. He's a professor of psychology. He's written a book called The Science and Art of Dreaming. And he's the director of the Swansea University Sleep Laboratory. What is your theory of why we dream? These these theories come and go, but the the one that yes. seems to stick around is that it's some kind of solidification of memory. Yes, that's a very popular one in the in the sci in the scientific literature. The problem is there's no 
experimental evidence in favor of it. Now, there's an alternative theory which says that dreams are just a byproduct of a, of evolution. They, they have no purpose. They're ephemeral. If you don't wake up from them, they don't do anything for you. And so that view, the what's called the epiphenomenal view of dreams, that they are just um, like the smoke coming out from a factory, really, and that they don't have any function at all. Now, the two theories are, are, are vying with each other. And I've always been I could always see the point of each of them. And I could never quite see I could never land on one of them at all. The one that says that we our dreams have a function also say that if you don't remember a dream in the morning, the dream has done its function during the night. You know, it's connected our memories together for us. Now, when I started doing all of these uh, dream groups and working on dream groups with with students and for experiments and publishing on that it was partly with the view that dreams are helping our memories and therefore if you remember your dreams it may do something for you that's quite beneficial now what then happened was i wanted to do more public events of people discussing their own dreams and so julia lockhart who's an artist said why don't i paint the dream for them and then they'll have a painting of the dream that they can show to family and friends afterwards and they can carry on discussing the dream. Now, what happened after about two years of of doing that is that we'd we'd had lots of wonderful dreams from people, but we started to notice that these dreams were really quite affecting us some of the time. And so we started thinking, well, maybe a large amount of the effect of dreams is on the people who are discussing the dreams. And so we set up experiments at Swansea University in which people would discuss their dreams with each other and we tested them for how much empathy they had towards each other. And what we found was that the people who were discussing someone's dream had an increased level of appreciation of the life of that person and an increased empathy towards them. And so what we've proposed is that rather than dreams having a function during the night, Maybe the function of dreams is to be shared, that they are a fiction that we produce during the night. And we may have even evolved uh, humans to have dreams that have lots of characters in them, lots of emotions in them, and are worth telling to other people. Oh, how interesting. Yes. So sitting around the fire in the cave, talking about the dreams. Yes, in the same way that they would have talked about stories. Yes. But in this case, it's actually stories that the individuals produced during the night themselves. And the very interesting thing then is that there's a theory of social evolution for humans called human self-domestication. <laughs> and what it proposes is that rather than, you know, humans being all red and two and claw that that type of thing for evolution what we've actually done is we've domesticated each other in the same way we've domesticated our cats and dogs and so we choose cats and dogs that are more docile and more friendly same with horses and the theory goes that across you know 200 300,000 years or so we have chosen humans who are who are less reactive less prone to anger and more prone to empathy for each other and that we've become domesticated and stories are part of that stories help us to learn about each other and fiction helps to learn about each other and that what we're proposing is that dreams are a type of fiction that we produce 
that disclose ourselves to other people, sometimes involuntarily. Sometimes we can't help but do it. Sometimes we don't know what's in the dream when we're telling it to someone else or what it might mean. But it's a way of the group bonding with itself and with each other. And it does seem to fit in with human self-domestication. So we've got a chapter in the book on human self-domestication. And for example, the fact that you can domesticate foxes in a few generations, you can make them really quite tame. And so domestication works really quite speedily. And so we think it may be very plausible that even if humans, you know, 200,000 years ago had very rudimentary type of dreams, once they start speaking and telling each other stories or talking to each other, the the dreams would start to evolve into the very complex type of dreams that we have now. Why is it that when you wake up, you the dream is there vivid in your head, yes. and a nanosecond later, yes. it's gone? Yes, that's very true. That's very true that although dreams are unbelievably vivid, and if something like that was happening to you when you were awake, you would never forget it. So and the very, feeling very... can stay with you. If it's an yes. uncomfortable dream, the feeling will stay with you all day, but you just don't know what the dream was. Yes, and unless you say it back to yourself quickly, it's almost always disappears. Now, I mean, are you recommending rare. that? Are you recommending that we remember the dream um, yes. because of it's... what you've previously said and also to practice remembering yes because it does look like and some people explain this biochemically they say that the brain is in a very different biochemical state when we're asleep from when we're awake and we we don't remember what happens to us during sleep and dreams are one of the things that happen to us and so you have to make a special effort in in doing so i mean one theory on that holds that irrespective of what dreams are doing during the night our sleep is helping our memories and what the brain doesn't want you to do is to be taking in new things and the dream in a way is a new thing and so possibly because of the chemistry of the brain being so different when we're asleep and we wake up and we're in a completely different state the dream does sort of disappear from us and so what's being said about the importance and usefulness of dream sharing you've actually in a way got to fight against that possibly by having your phone to hand and keeping your eyes closed but saying into the phone what's happened to you in the dream and above all not being judgmental about the dream not thinking oh i know what that's about or or it's too crazy to think about just remember the whole dream without being judgmental about it and uh, that way you get the full report of it I have this dream, or at least I used to have this dream, where I had to walk from A to B and I just, I couldn't walk. I had this terrible problem walking and it was hideous and I had to escape, I couldn't escape, I couldn't walk. As soon as I, because I suffer from restless legs, Mm. right, as soon as I realised that it was because the legs had become restless in the night, I stopped having that dream. So if you understand what a dream might mean or what it came from, you can stop yes. it happening. Now, that's not lucid dreaming, but it's quite helpful, isn't it? Yes, it is. That's what, what that's saying is that 
in a way you've changed your attitude to the dream or you know what was producing the dream and that stops that particular dream happening like you just said it's you, you don't become lucid that's not what's causing it. it's causing the change no. what's causing the change is you've you've in a way altered your way of looking at the dream and that is something that is done with nightmares the the main established therapy for nightmares is called imagery rehearsal therapy and what happens in that is people remember the nightmare that they've had they think of a way to change it and they repeat that over and over and over to themselves for about five minutes during the evening and then during as they're about to fall off to sleep and that in a way that stops them having that dream and it decreases the number of nightmares they have but this is as you've just said not to do with lucidity this is changing your way that you look at the dream should we be encouraging ourselves practicing to to have lucid dreams would that be a good thing now that is a a big question that many people are asking at the Mm. moment uh that that is a very interesting question some people say that the methods to get you to have lucid dreams are not so good for your sleep quality. So, for example, if if you're waking up early in order to be awake for a while and then go back to sleep, you can have a detrimental effect on your overall sleep quality. So let's assume you're not doing that too much. Um, the other good thing that's said to be about lucid dreams is is the sort of awe you can have when you've had oh my goodness this is just amazing that this can happen and that can be very exciting and it can really in a way it's a bit like art you know it can really draw you out of yourself that you've managed to have this amazing experience but the downside seems to be that it could very well be that it's your spontaneous dreams where the dream is producing this fiction for you without your any deliberate control from yourself that those are the ones that could be more important for your for right. your life the question As is whether it's good to interfere with your own dreams yes. well that that's difficult because some lucid dreams they're, they're recreational and you you could enjoy them greatly and so for that reason they could be well worth having it's just that you wouldn't want to be one of the few people who's having them. I, I, I would suggest that you wouldn't want to be one of the few people who's having them every day because you really would be then not having these fictions no. that you're producing. Um, no, and you'd always be on the job. You'd always, yes, and you'd always be, yes, you would. You'd <laughs> always be trying to work out what can I control next and what should I be in charge of and what's the next thing I should do. What yes, about you? Do you have lucid dreams? Bit. I do occasionally once every few years. I did have one a few weeks back where I I was in my house and I looked at the corridor and the corridor was L-shaped, whereas the corridor in, in reality is, is long with a landing that goes to the stairs. And I thought, that's not right. I must be dreaming. And I thought, right, um, I'm going to start swimming and start flying. So I, I was making swimming movements in order to fly. Um, yes, my actual first thought, actually, to be to be honest, my actual first thought was, I wonder where my wife is. I'll, I'll bring her into the dream. And I couldn't. <laughs> nice. So then I thought just to be social about it. You know, I don't just spend <laughs> my time being recreational and <laughs> all the time. That was my first thought was to be social in the dream. But when that wasn't occurring, I thought, right, OK, I'm going to fly. But I realized that to fly, I needed to 
to do a sort of a swimming motion. Fascinating area of research, right? Mm. Yes, it is. I mean, we we nobody, although it's a very fascinating area of research because although some people have studied the effects of dream sharing on um, intimacy between people and so people feeling closer they hadn't actually studied using it using an actual measure of empathy so we were really quite pleased that we'd we'd managed to do that to uh to to push the field along and the interesting thing is that that theory about empathy it arose from the the group dream discussions with simultaneous painting that we have and so that was where the spark for that came from. But then, of course, you've then got it doesn't really matter where your hypothesis comes from. What you've got to do is to set up experiments to test the hypothesis, which we then did. And we actually found that the dream sharer doesn't have an increased empathy towards the towards the person who's discussing ah, the dream. Right. Because obviously the dream sharer is concentrating on their own life at that point. The discusser is having an increase in empathy, but the dream sharer's empathy towards the other person just stays constant and, and doesn't move. So in the real world, what you would have to do in order to have people in general having an increase in empathy is to have people taking it in turns and, and to share dreams. And what we hope is there are studies now showing that levels of empathy in Western society is decreasing and that this could be a way if it was done more often of uh, hopefully increasing the empathy and increases people increasing people's understanding of other people's circumstances so one, one thing that we do in the, in our dream salon sessions is that we set it up so i sit at the front of a hall or, or a venue with with the dreamer and julia lockhart the artist sits behind us at a table with all of her paints and uh, there's a big screen so that the painting process can be projected onto the screen and everybody who's sitting there in the in the dream salon can join in with the discussion but they can also watch the dream being painted and watch it being uh created on paper uh, we've got a youtube channel with lots of films of these and we've got a website dreamsid.com where the final art works are shown with the dreams and with the comments from the dreamer about their life and uh, possibly about the dreaming as well. And so we, we have these sort of happenings in a way or salons where people can really engage with somebody's dream and really examine it in a very fun way. You know, it's, it's a very sort of fun activity to be done. We do it at the Freud Museum in London sometimes and get a lot of people. Some people sign up to just come along and be there and other people happen to be at the Freud Museum which was Freud's house in London in 1938 and 1939. And it was, and they're just visiting the place and they just sit there and they realise, ah, there's a dream being discussed and they sit there and just join in huh. with it all while watching the dream being painted. And that's Professor Mark Blaygrove, unprecedented number of texts about dreaming. Uh, so go to our webpage and link on to Professor Blaygrove's YouTube channel. Um, about dreaming the dream salons, which is really interesting.